0: Alright, hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of the Publisher Lab. I am Tyler Bishop and alongside me today, Shelby Kang. And Shelby, we are in a new office experimenting with new technology and equipment. And so, what do you think so far?
1: Uh, So far, so good. Um, Actually, in this new office... The rooms are a little bit different. They're a little more echoey and um, we're working on kind of improving that. So if uh, the sound quality is a little bit different, hopefully it's better because we worked on on making it better. But if it's different, uh, just bear with us. as Yeah, just
0: bear with us. I think it... Probably this episode and the next couple will have all kinds of really interesting and fun things that we'll be adding into the podcast to try to make it better and improve it alongside some of the other content that we know runs ancillary to the podcast, like inside the Publisher Lab. Um, But Shelby, uh, outside of all the things that we have going on, what's going on in the world of publishing right now?
1: Yeah, um, I wanted to start off with this article about the Telegraph. So a couple episodes ago, we talked about... You know how publishers spend more on engagement than acquisition. Um, and this article is actually talking about how the telegraph Acquires and retains their readers. Um, so The Telegraph has hit their goal of 3 million registered users, and they're saying that a big part of that success has been switching their strategy from a metered paywall to a hybrid one. So I didn't know what a metered paywall meant um, before this. <laughs> so but many
0: free, it means like a certain amount of free articles before you had to start paying, right?
1: Exactly. And so now they're using the hybrid approach where they keep a certain percentage of content behind a paywall. Um, and they keep the rest available for free. So they originally started by gaining 20% of their content, but now boosted that number to 35% of the content. Um, and the Telegraph began shifting their strategy from going after mass reach audience numbers to building a base of registered users a couple years ago. Um, and this is because registered users are generally more likely to convert to subscription, um, and they also have more access to first-party data that way. Um, So, registered users of the Telegraph can access one premium article per week and they also have access to the My Telegraph app um, which allows them to save articles and tailor kind of their feed according to their interest. So, the app uses machine learning to also tailor content according to each user um, by using rich data such as, you know, browsing habits and things like that. And it also uses data to determine the stage in which the user is to prompt different things. Uh, for example, a new registered user probably needs to know the products and services that are offered, whereas a user who's been signed up for a year probably just wants to see their content. So obviously the Telegraph is a huge media organization. They've got a lot of technology and money and resources and bandwidth to kind of execute these type of things. But is there anything that our listeners or publishers can take away from this or implement themselves as far as just, you know, engaging with their users and providing extra value?
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, hey, we know the Telegraph. Uh, Chris Taylor came and uh, spoke uh, at our event at Google in London. And um, you know, he shared, you know, some of his insights, which we've shared before here on the podcast and other places. But uh, what I think is interesting, uh, a couple takeaways. One is... Um, you know, uh, first I'm first I'm going to kind of be hard on them, and then I'm going to like highlight all the things that I think they're doing really well, and and maybe some things that uh, a lot of other publishers can implement too. And where I'll be hard on them is basically in you know, this idea that you know uh, a lot of publishers right now are looking into how do they pivot to subscriptions, right? How do you how do you generate more subscriptions? And you know, the Telegraph has basically declared victory in a lot of ways by saying. We've, um, in, in the same way that you know, uh, musicians used to be able to say, "We sold that. We were having trouble selling out our shows, but now we sold them out." And you're like, what "Would you do different?" Well, we gave away tickets for free, and uh, that's not really what the Telegraph is doing here. But um, they've lowered the bar a little bit and um, and lowered the bar just by their own outward metrics by basically saying, "Hey, we're gonna make subscriptions." Um, not something that we're as aggressively keeping away from people. So if you register, you'll be able to get more of our content uh, without having to pay for it. And obviously that's attractive. Uh, They've got a great product, uh, very well um, known brand uh, news, and that seems to be what people are willing to pay for. We talked before about what people are and aren't willing to pay for in terms of written content. Uh, Brand news seems to be the one exception where people are. Um, so that being said, uh, logged in users do provide uh, a lot more data for, for the publisher. So this is data that you can use to segment. Um, it's also data that you can use to personalize. And all these things can help you um, improve the engagement, get users to come back. Um, there's a, a lot of good reasons why you would want to do this. Hopefully, if you're listening to this, you can kind of perceive how this would help you potentially sell to directly to advertisers or... If nothing else, just get users to come back to your site or spend more time on it. I don't know how good the Telegraph is yet at true personalization. Um, to be able to say the visitors that are new versus the visitors that have subscribed for a year, that's not really personalization so much as it is segmentation. And um, I don't know how well they're using machine learning either. Uh, based on what I know about their business, not they're not doing it very much. Um, But I do think that that is the next layer to this that everybody is going to start getting pretty good at. And we've talked before about what is personalization, what does it really look like? Uh, I think no one's 100% sure, but um, it'll be people like the Telegraph to start setting the precedent for what that looks like. So if you're a digital publisher right now and you're like, Tyler, this doesn't pertain to me. um, The truth is, is it does. If you have a WordPress site or pretty much any CMS uh, there's extensions or built in functionality. WordPress has built in to where anybody could become a logged in user. You just get their information, they create a user account, and then um, that basically gives you access to things like their email and other information that you can use to kind of keep them coming back when they are on your site and they're logged in. Um, you can create different experiences th- for them. Um, you can do things like rewards where basically you might put premium content behind a locked wall, where basically if they're subscribed, um, they can have access to content that others don't. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think maybe that's even step two, but there's a lot of benefits to being able to do that and not something that has a very tall barrier to entry.
1: Yeah, so you've asked me this question, but I don't think I've asked you this question. And since you brought it up, what does personalization mean to you when it comes to digital publishing?
0: Well, I think that's tough um, because for me, and in many cases, when I'm, it, it really depends on context. Um, so for me, the context of me being on my phone and reading an article from just about any publisher, you can strip out pretty much everything but the HTML for me. Um, I just want the text. I want the Apple Reader version uh, of content, and so um, I don't want my page to be slowed down. I just want the information fast and easy and quick. Um, then there's times whenever I'm trying to consume like more rich media, like video or audio or, um, even certain like image based media. Um, and I'm kind of in a different mode usually like when I'm not at work, um, or like during working hours where like, if I'm reading an article, it's probably because it's like relevant maybe to something that somebody has sent me and I'm trying to like parse through the information. Um, and so in those cases, uh, I'm open to, um, all kinds of different uh, ways to like make basically improve the way that I engage with it. Um, it could be the way that the layout changes. It can be the way the navigation, you could give me a slideshow versus a scroll. Like, um, to be honest, I don't really know, but I'm open to whichever one of those, <laughs> you know, like ultimately is the best. And I'd let a machine decide that. And I know that they're pretty good at those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I think maybe the form of the content, meaning like kind of, you know, I'm thinking layouts, fonts, colors, styles, kind of the general gamut of it. Um, I don't know that I can cross that bridge of like you get something totally different from from me. Um, and I, to be honest, I know a lot of publishers are looking into this. This idea of, uh, we like, let's pretend you and I both go to the New York Times. The New York Times would show you on their front page completely different stories than they would show me based on what they think they know about users like you or users like me. Um, I don't know if I want that or not. Maybe I do. Um, it just depends on what that looks like. I don't know that we know when, when that scales. Like, does that mean that I, because, like, maybe... You know, I'm a um, – let's pretend you're a 16-year-old um, high school student and I am a 35-year-old, um, you know, investment banker, whatever. Do I deserve like a more highbrow, like informed version of the news and do you deserve like the latest, you know, like, I don't know, pop, music, star information or whatever? Uh, I'm speaking in generalities because that's basically what it, it would potentially do and I don't know that – um, we want to put, I don't know that publishers that are based in news and we're just talking about news right now, want to make decisions about what they choose to inform people about. I don't know.
1: Yeah. that is. Kind social media has been
0: kind of doing that for a while, you yeah.
1: know? Yeah. Taking into account the things that you like and who you follow. And, you know, I mean, they were just talking about search history, looking at things that you've. Queried for and possibly bringing up some content there. Um, good segue into the next thing I want to talk about, which is Business Insider and Taboola are partnering up. Saw that. Yeah, so Business Insider is integrating Taboola feed to give readers a social style content experience. As an alternative to Facebook and Instagram, um, their carousel style. So the content recommendation carousel will give readers a continual, personalized content feed of Business Insider articles and also third-party content in the form of native ads. I see your smirk there. Um, So the CEO of Taboola says that this uh, the similar experience to what users are having on social media grows the performance for publishers so it's supposed to somehow translate you scrolling through instagram is gonna help you scroll through these Taboola articles
0: i, I do see a lot more i'm surprised business insider i'm i'm sure that Taboola uh gave them a really nice contract that they're gonna here's the thing about those native ad businesses um and not to pick on Taboola, but they there's a reason why they make publishers sign contracts and they're usually pretty lucrative, but the thing is, is uh, those feeds that they're talking about. There was one that we got into the other day. It was basically infinite. That actually, when you got to the bottom of the page, if you kept scrolling, you just got more native ads, and it went on. I think we scrolled for like three minutes straight. But um, yeah. as you
1: scrolled, did you notice that the content started getting less and less relevant, or was it still? It's
0: just more and more native ads. Mm-hmm. You know, just the content re- content recommendation stuff, and it's all the thing. It's the You know, Obama approved this, you know, housing bill and Trump hasn't shut it down yet. Get your free money, you know, like all those types of things, Mm -hmm. Um, which is what people come to expect from native. And I think publishers a lot of times talk themselves out of, you know, how bad it is. And, you know, a lot of these native ad businesses, they do something tricky where they'll actually proxy the uh, publisher's IP address. So when the publisher logs in and they see the native ads, they never see the aggressive ones or the ones that are kind of more lowbrow. But if they log in anonymously, they'll start to see what the user actually sees, which are usually these like kind of like ever expanding things. So these widgets they put in, they're not like a solid block. They, they're they expanding. So what happens is when a user scrolls, um, they'll... They'll expand and so you'll actually, the page will grow with more and more native impressions and density as the person scrolls down the page. And so this allows them to give more ad impressions and they'll say, well, look, people are engaging with it more, but people are actually just scrolling because they're trying to get to the bottom of the page and what they're doing is just loading more ads. I'm not a huge fan. I, I do like that. Uh, I know that Glamour and a couple other publishers have talked recently about redesigning their sites to be more like a social media app. Um, really trying, they're they're trying to tap into their audience, which is similar to uh, Snap and uh, Instagram uh, based users. And I I don't I, I see the value in potentially doing something like that. Um, I worry though a little bit about um, uh, I guess partially the, the, uh, efficacy of something like that. So when you go to glamour.com, are you looking for an Instagram or Snapchat experience? My gut tells me that they're, they're not, but I could be wrong. Um, and it's also glamour wants to sell stuff too. And so they're, they're trying to find this like happy medium of like, how do we be snap Amazon? And, um, and
1: also a uh- you know, provide content to read and yeah. be a publisher. Oh, by the way, yeah, and
0: that's what I don't like about it, I guess. Um, so, uh, Business Insider' their thing with Taboola is actually different. It's just probably more of a cash grab than it is anything else. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't think that this is a long term trend. I, I do think that you'll see publishers cash in on things like this. But I think there, I think there's probably a price to pay that um, many of them will look down the road and say we. We wish we wouldn't have done that.
1: Mm, Now they're stuck in a two-year contract. So
0: they probably, honestly, probably is like a two-year contract. Yeah, the the, the, article said
1: said it's a two-year contract. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, The next thing I wanted to talk about was Facebook. So um, they recently warned publishers not to depend on them. Um, So the global head of news partnerships at Facebook announced that Facebook is constantly changing and is not dependable. He also said that Facebook cannot be the entire solution to publisher problems. In case you hadn't
0: got the message yet.
1: Right. Well, Mm -hmm. at least they're finally like blatantly like, listen... We can't do this. I am not your God. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So if a brand is being built solely on Facebook distribution, it's going to have problems because of ever-changing algorithms. Um, So despite Facebook's commitment of $300 million to support news publishers last year, now they're like, just kidding. You can't depend on us.
0: Yeah. And I think that that's universally true with Facebook, and we continue to find that out. And, I mean, if you're a digital publisher and – at And Facebook has done something to you recently or does something to you in the future. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that I was so reliant on Facebook. And wow, you guys really let me down. Um, I think at this point, you know, what's the old saying? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We're in shame on me territory now with Facebook. Yeah. Um, So, I mean... As a platform, I think as a digital publisher, you have to look at Facebook and you have to just kind of look at it and say, how can I use this to my advantage? Um, you don't build anything on top of it. Don't build a strategy around it, but basically say, listen, this is a massive platform that has potential. When, when can I take advantage of it? And, you know, like anything that you can get out of it is fantastic, that's great, but, um, they burned publishers too many times to, to really invest in a long-term strategy there. Um, I think it makes it tough for publishers that do uh, understand social and their audiences are on Facebook. The Facebook audiences are generally a little older. Um, uh, there's a reporter for, I think it's BuzzFeed, or maybe it's The Atlantic that I follow uh, on Twitter. Uh, her name is Taylor, and she recently interviewed... Uh, with Digiday on their podcast, and she talked about how basically younger um, younger generations don't use Facebook at all, and I think that's a perception that people already have, but Facebook's audience is, is an older audience, and so um, as a digital publisher, there is some kind of, um, uh, I guess, drop-dead date with you know how relevant Facebook's going to be, but a lot of people, that's their audience, and so Um, figure out when Facebook is allowing you to tap into it and when they're not. And, um, it makes it hard to build a strategy team around if you have a social team, you know, like just tell them not to go in all in on Facebook.
1: It kind of um, makes me wonder what the younger generation is on because I recently saw that, you know, Twitter's audience is a lot lower than you would expect. They're
0: daily, they're active daily users, which surprised a lot of people.
1: Yeah. And then Snapchat's not growing. So what are these kids up to? What are they-
0: Well, I think Instagram is big. Um, one of the things that, you know, and this is something maybe you can help me with a little bit is I think what's interesting to me about Instagram because we uh, we had a project where we, had, um, we were acquiring accounts and working with uh, different publishers uh, in an Instagram capacity. And I was blown away by just how fake a lot of things on Instagram are, both not bots followers, but just the activity and engagement. They're real people in a lot of cases, but they hire services to do follow backs and all this kind of stuff. And so it's... It's just not real. It's not actual. And I think people understand this, you know, the influencer bubble right now that I think a lot of people are like very heavily scrutinizing is looking at this. But I do think that there are lots and lots of real users that are spending tons of time on Instagram. Um, But I don't know that anyone has really figured out how to uh, maximize the potential of that from both an advertiser and then also from a publishing standpoint. As, As a publisher right now, really... Other than trying to be an influencer, right, and then selling to brands directly, which that's not going to be here forever. Let's not pretend like Facebook is going to allow that to happen. Um, You know, as a publisher, what do you do with, with Instagram other than just kind of use it as like a channel to acquire new interests, and visitors and things like that.
1: Yeah, I think the most success as far as who's been successful on Instagram are just like e-commerce companies, just selling things. Um, The last thing I have on deck today is the New York Times paused their Snapchat channel. So they launched on Snapchat in April of 2017 and had been sharing newspaper and magazine stories um, with a team of 10 people managing it. So the most recent edition on Snapchat is dated from December 2018. Um, But it's still unclear why the New York Times decided to stop posting on the channel. Um, could be due to the fact that snapchat isn't growing anymore, but they're still increasing revenues So it's kind of up in the air. I didn't know what your thoughts were I know you're not a big snap or not a snapchat user at all, right?
0: I uh, no, I I, ha- I use snapchat just not not all that much I have a like a, a close circle of people that I snapchat with um, It's it's kind of a weird group of people that I like connected in there, but I'm not a heavy user of the app um, but I mean, here is what is interesting to me about it is that it does have more active daily users than Twitter, right? I've, I've been thinking about this a lot because there's a lot of talk about the monopolies that occur in this space. Mainly, you know, Wired had an article a couple weeks ago about how uh, it was very clickbaity. It said, uh, Germany has outlawed Facebook's ad business. Um, and, of course, that's not what has happened at all. Uh, Germany has basically accused Facebook of antitrust and... Forcing users to agree to um, uh, a form of data sharing uh, to use the platform that is unreasonable, not basically giving people options. Like if you want to use the platform, you have to agree to like unprecedented access to your data. And um, I think Facebook will fight that. Um, They're saying, listen, you don't have to use our platform. But Germany basically says, well, listen, you're the only platform that does what you do. And they said, well, no, there's YouTube and Twitter and Google. And they said, those aren't the same thing. And they kind of twisted uh, Mark Zuckerberg's uh, words against him, which when he testified here at Congress, um, there was kind of a a snarky quote that he made to one of the congressmen that said something, um, uh, he said something along the lines of, well, Twitter isn't Facebook, Senator, or something like that. And the truth is um, that... All these platforms are kind of unique in their own way. And what I'm getting to is that Twitter is really, um, it's a it's a different thing than Snapchat. So to expect the users to be more is not necessarily reasonable because I think people use Twitter. There's a lot of reporters and news personalities. If you look at the people that are verified on Twitter, most of the people that are verified that aren't like celebrities, they're all uh, reporters and people that write and distribute news. And that's really what Twitter is for. And there's a certain... I would say minority of the population that wants to be plugged into the, you know, arbiters of the news and then the rest of the people are just kinda like, eh, I'll get it when it's out. Like I don't need to be connected to all these people. Uh, Snapchat, as much as I, I the reason why the New York Times isn't publishing on it is because it's not a publishing platform. It's not Twitter, it's not Instagram, it's not Facebook. It's a chatting app. Think about how I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. You use Snapchat to communicate with your friends and people like that. How often are you in the sections where you're like reading and consuming content?
1: I actually might be one of those unique cases where I pretty much only use it to read content. And I really? don't use it to communicate with my friends. No, now I use...
0: Do, do you think that do you think that that's a normal thing? I think
1: it's pretty split. We actually, in one of my marketing classes, talked about Snapchat. Um, and we were kind of just dissecting it and why are people going to Snapchat there's two main reasons to communicate and to consume content um and there wasn't really a clear consensus in the room of like which one is more popular so it's huh. it's really hard to say but
0: those are two very different things though right yeah and and it's interesting because um Twitter and Facebook kind of started as both of those things. They started as basically platforms for people to communicate and stay socially connected. And they tran- they transformed into like this window into the rest of the world, right? Twitter especially. I mean, Twitter used to be basically the equivalent. I think Jack mentioned earlier, it's basically the equivalency of a status update on like AOL back in the day or instant messenger, basically saying like, I'm out to lunch right now or whatever it is. And that's really for a close group of people. Now, when you think about Twitter, it's like Twitter is like the worst social media one to stay connected to like friends or family or close, you know, close-knit of people. So, I mean, maybe Snapchat will evolve into that. And maybe that's, that's where things move. Um, I'm not so sure, but I do think these are all really different. And I think the New York Times is probably looking at it and saying, our audience isn't consuming content here, but, you know. knows they might be wrong
1: yeah I know um, CNN used to put content onto snapchat and then they stopped and they started doing something else and then they stopped and they started doing something else so it's likely that the New York Times will come back and do a different approach or or something else but
0: what what does seem to be interesting here is we do have this kind of like you know this set of apps, basically, these platforms, Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, there doesn't seem to be anything like emerging behind it. No. And, I, and I don't see social, would you say social media is dying? Probably the opposite. Right? I wouldn't
1: say, yeah, I would say it's definitely thriving and it's on, on the up, but it's just really unclear where it's going to go.
0: Yeah. And I think that, yeah, I think there's a lot of things that are really unclear about kind of the digital future for a lot of things, you know?
1: I guess we'll just have to see. But um, that's all I have for this week.
0: Well, excellent. Um, It's been fun kind of getting into the new office and some of our new things. So uh, thanks for joining along with us and um, being a part of this journey. Uh, You know, I was just remarking the other day I sent you a message on our Slack channel, uh, but uh, Shelby, (laughs) not our audience, you're like, we have a Slack channel? The podcast does? Not yet, but the the podcast has grown quite a bit over the last uh, couple months, and that's all thanks to all of you loyal listeners and the reviews and things like that along the lines in iTunes. So we are looking for different ways to continue to expand and grow the podcast, maybe more episodes or content, um, but it all starts with with um, all of you and uh, just continuing to write us those reviews inside of iTunes, uh, sharing the podcast with people that you know, uh, and then just giving us feedback. So. Uh, You can always tweet at us at Ezoic um, or email Shelby at sking at Ezoic, E-Z-O-I-C dot com, uh, with any ideas or suggestions about what we should cover on the the podcast or even potentially guests. We haven't had a guest on in a long time. Um, So, yeah, all those things would continue to help us improve and make the podcast better. So thank you for listening. This has been another episode of The Publisher Lab.